Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. It's so good to have you along. And I got to tell you, I'm having a lot of fun hearing from all of you. So many of you are like feeding back on iTunes, leaving awesome ratings and reviews. And um, a lot of you are leaving comments on my blog. And, and some of you have written notes. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful. Um, the goal in all of this, and that's why we do these things every week, is to help you and maybe even your team lead like never before. So I'm really glad you're along today. Today. We got a really exciting episode. I'll get to that in just a moment. But I also want to say thank you to everybody who's shown up on the Orange Tour. This fall, we're going to see over 10,000 leaders in a dozen different cities. And I'm not able to make every city, but I've been at a bunch of them. And uh, the Orange Tour is almost over. I would love to meet you. If you live anywhere near Texas, uh, we've got a couple of tour stops coming up uh, November 4th in Austin and November 7th in Dallas. And I'll be doing some keynotes, breakouts, and also leading a, a, or hosting a leaders lunch. I'd love to have you come to that. And uh, it's not too late to get in. Just go to orangetour.org to register or just slip on over to the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven. And uh, those will have the links so you can get over there. Also, uh, this is kind of cool. This is the first podcast with a contest. That's right. First episode, I should say. I'm sure other podcasts have had contests, but uh, I'm going to do a contest for the next few weeks and you can win every week. And then there is a grand prize at the end of the contest that you're not going to want to miss. And so I'm going to tell you all about that toward the end of the podcast today, and you can start entering today. Um, and the easiest way to get over there is just go over to the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven. There'll be some details there. And I'm going to tell you all about it after we talk about today's um, subject. So hang on for that. Now, um, the subject of this podcast, really three things, leadership, change, and personal growth. And a lot of that really, I think, comes, comes from the heart. And if you think about your leadership as a leader, I mean, if it's going well at home, if it's going well in your marriage, if it's going well personally and in, in your walk with God, if you're a Christian, or um, if it's going well in terms of your marriage or your key relationship, then things tend to go better at work. And when they don't, um, things don't go well. And that's why already just seven episodes in, We've heard from a variety of subjects that really talk about, you know, personal growth and and the changes that we need to make as people. So, for example, in episode two, Perry Noble talked all about his burnout and depression and even suicidal thoughts as a leader powerful episode, one of the most downloaded ones we've had so far. And then a couple of episodes ago, in episode four, Kara Powell talked about why young adults are walking away from the church. But what was so fascinating is she spoke to the parent in all of us and to the young adults who are walking away and the environments that we could uh, create for them. And then in episode five, I talked to Craig Jutilla and Craig talked about how leadership really led the way he led, um, led to the breakdown in his marriage and how he and his wife managed to work through that. And so you're going to hear that from time to time. And again, today, we're going to talk about something that might um, strike into some of our hearts as parents. I'm a dad. I have two um, sons who are now young adults. They're 18 and 22. And so this was a really timely subject for me. It's also a timely subject for me as a church leader, because I lead a church that really is trying to reach a lot of young adults. And it's also timely for me as a boss, because um, as a boss, I lead, you know, as a leader of a church, I lead a lot of young adults. So that's why I'm so excited about today. And the 
the subject in episode seven today is delayed adolescence. That's right. Um, you've probably seen it. You've probably felt it. You're struggling with it in different ways as a parent or maybe even as a young adult yourself. Um, but there seems to be a delay in the launch into adulthood. Sometimes, you know, people call it failure to launch. Like, why are so many 20-somethings dependent on their parents for help and like almost daily advice? And um, when do we really become adults? And I could think of no better guest to take us through this than Ted Cunningham. Ted is the author of multiple books, including um, Fun Loving You and um, also Young and In Love and Trophy Child. A lot of his ideas that we're going to talk about today are in Young and In Love and in Trophy Child, his two recent books. He's also co-authored a bunch of books with Dr. Gary Smalley, um, so you might be familiar with him in that. And he's also the pastor, in his spare time, of uh, Woodland Hills Family Church in Branson, Missouri. He's leading a great church there. So you're going to love Ted. He's got a very countercultural perspective on this, and you may agree with a lot of what he says or little of what he says, but I think it's fascinating, and I think it's really helpful. So when I listened, uh, you know, went through this interview as a dad and also a church leader and a boss, I love working with young adults, but I also see some of the challenges, and I see some of the things that he hopes young adults will do um, at work in the people that I care about in that generation. So anyway, fascinating interview. We're going to talk about why is it that it takes so long for people to grow up these days and what you can do about it as a parent, a boss, or a young adult. So after the interview, again, coming back with details on a contest. And in the meantime, I don't think there's any reason to wait. Let's jump in. Here's Ted. Well, it's a thrill to have Ted Cunningham here today. Ted, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Hey, Ted. Um, give us a little bit of background. Uh, tell us what you do and um, how you got into studying this whole business of, of millennials and leaders and delayed adolescence, which I think we're going to have an awful lot of fun talking about today. Yeah. You know, 12 years ago, we started Woodland Hills Family Church in Branson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And my passion, my my calling, I believe, is marriage and family. And as I was encouraging couples in our church a few years back uh, with a series on, you know, just a simple enjoying life and marriage message, uh, just looking around at the young adults in our congregation that were kind of saying, nah, you know, I don't see it. I don't need it. And it was really the first time it hit me of the young adults in our church that just had no desire to pursue marriage. So I thought it was a marriage issue. So I dug into it a little bit more. And then I realized it's not really a marriage issue they're struggling with. It's the delayed adulthood milestones Hmm. and, and how that's connected with, you know, the workplace, how that's connected with the home, how that's connected with the church. Uh, I've just sensed, and even the way we program in the church, young people today with the desire to grow up being told by the adults in their life, you got plenty of time. Don't worry about that. <laughs> How many Take times have time? I heard that? No yeah. kidding. <laughs> and so, no kidding. So it's not, I, I meet a lot of young people today that want to take on the, the responsibility of work and relationships, but all of the influences in their life are saying, ah, don't rush. You're only 24. You know, take your time. You got your whole life ahead of you. And so I just started in teaching and preaching as I would teach on marriage, as I would teach on work, as I would teach on money, I would always keep the young adult in mind to say, okay, why are they so relaxed with this message right now? And I would just always in every message have a challenge for them to paint a beautiful picture of the future for them to say, you don't have to wait another five years to start what we're talking about today. We're talking about today at church about saving money. You don't have to wait until you're 30 and everything's paid off before you start thinking about 
a 401k or start, start mm-hmm. thinking about saying everything in their mind is just wait, 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 wait. And I just, I just, I've just developed a passion for removing the unnecessary delays of those adulthood milestones. Well, that's fascinating. I think this is going to be challenging to parents then and older leaders who might be saying, oh, you got all kinds of time, as well as uh, to younger leaders as well, who might be thinking, you know, life doesn't start till 30 or, or 35 <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever. So let, let's talk about that because this kind of plays into the whole tension. And I mean, it's been written about in every business magazine, church leaders are talking about it. David Kinnaman has done studies on millennials. Um, Tim Elmore, who writes a blog, Growing Leaders, has talked a lot about the millennial generation or Generation IY, as he calls them. But really, it's, it's about millennial leaders. And those are leaders or people in their late teens, right through their 20s to their early 30s. And so this idea about prolonged adolescence, because I love when we were talking a couple of weeks ago about something else, you, you, you raised that and I said, I got to have you on the podcast to talk about this. So this prolonged adolescence is sort of this idea that leaders are not growing up um, quickly enough today. Um, where did that come from? And how long has that been around? Because according to you, it's a pretty recent phenomena, isn't it? This idea of delayed maturity. Yeah. And, and they say, if, if you, it depends on who you research with this. It, the shift started back in the 1980s. Okay. As we move to a more nurturing home, as we move to a more kid-centered home, uh, you and I were raised in in homes where it wasn't the speak when spoken to, but mm-hmm. it was, you, you got to take on responsibility in an early age. And by early age, I mean, you know, when you're six, seven, eight, nine, you got things to do around this house. Oh, yeah. I remember dusting and vacuuming and making my bed and being told, you know, hey, this is just part of being the family. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I think... Here's the struggle I see today. The kid-centered home, we we raise children in the kid-centered home and we put so much emphasis on academics and athletics mm-hmm. to raise the, the responsibility bar in our young people that we honestly believe, okay, when you come home at night and when you're here on the weekend, we want this to be the place where you just crash, where you just unwind. You play your right. video games, hang out, get refreshed to go back out to school and back out to the sports field again. And the problem with that is when our kids leave home and they hit college and they get their first job, uh, they're shocked that their first employer, that the dean at their college, that uh, the resident assistant, the professor, uh, won't treat them in a similar fashion as their mom and dad did. (laughs) And they're shocked. They're like, wow, my mom and dad thought I was awesome. And now, now here I am looking at you. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't have the same or she doesn't have the same connection with me. And she's looking for some results in me. And so when, when I'm not judging and basing my value or worth to an organization or even to a school based on what I do and produce and it, rather than consume, uh, I'm just shocked. And so this is the sad part for me. We raise our children in kid-centered homes we send them out and we tell them, this is the church, this is the, the, the home. We tell them, go learn to be independent mm-hmm. for another five to 10 years. And Carrie, I really believe independence has become the new socially acceptable term for selfishness. Oh, we're, that's we're an interesting teaching, connection. We're teaching our kids, you got to learn how to be independent before you're ever going to be successful at work or in relationships. So go out and learn how to do that. And I'm saying, I believe that 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 
responsibility needs to start much earlier in the home. Mm. Well, just let's we'll get back to responsibility in a second because I think you're onto a gold mine there, Ted. And every boss, every employer, everybody who's got coworkers who's maybe run into this, and then those of us with adult kids are taking notes as well. But um, tell me a little bit about independence being a code word for selfishness. I've never heard that before, and it's really, really intriguing. Yeah, I, I define prolonged adolescence uh, as Ryan, a therapist friend of mine, Ryan Pinnell, defines it as too much privilege, not enough responsibility. Mm, bingo. And so, again, there's nothing wrong with privilege, and many have been handed privilege, but, you know, all throughout history, privilege was a result of responsibility. Mm. So you worked a year before you got two weeks off. Okay. Yes. You and you never in an interview with your boss would ask, do I get my birthdays off? All right. <laughs> you don't get your birthday off. I, I still see, don't ask that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and hope it falls on a Sunday. No, no, that's a work day. Right. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, but if you think about it, it's it's they're they're even going into the first job, the the interview for the first job with a privileged mindset. I, yeah. What do I? What time do I get off? Uh, do you? How, what do you expect out of me? And they're not coming at it from a, I want you to set the bar for me so I can exceed it. I just want to know what the bar is so so I can meet it, and I want to be able to make sure that that work doesn't get in the way of my life. It's and such so, a good point. Yeah, because as I'm learning to be independent, and again, I, I, I put this in the, even in the context of couples counseling, you know, the struggle I see with that 30-year-old couple struggling in their marriage who didn't get married until they were 28 or 29, it's because they effectively learned how to live by themselves and for themselves before they got married. Ooh. And so they get married, and, and the goal of marriage is oneness. Right? We want to become yes. one in marriage. So, but, but, and, and so I, whenever I, I always in the first 10 to 15 minutes of a, of a counseling session, picture them, they're either wearing the same jerseys or they're in opposite jerseys. Mm -hmm. They're either going down the field in the same direction or they're on opposite ends of the field going at each other. And independence feeds that I'm my own team. I, I'm my own person, mm -hmm. and so I, I want to make sure I don't lose my identity in this relationship because uh, my mom and dad revolved the house around me. Uh, I, I, I wanted, you know, I was given massive amounts of opportunity. When a young person gets out in their 20s today and they're met with the reality and responsibility of work and marriage, I think it's shocking for them. Oh, I don't yeah. think they've been prepared up to that point. And that is what I mean by independence. They've learned it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. Self-reliance. And now I'm in a work environment and it's not all about me. It's, well, you I, know, I, I've been married for a while. My wife and I got uh, married in the middle of school, which a lot of people told us was a mistake because you need to wait. I was 25. She was 27. Uh, like, wait until you get established. Wait until you have a house. Wait until this. And we just decided to get married. But even by that point in our mid-20s, I remember, and nobody's articulated it before, but I remember navigating that tension. And I would say when we started our marriage, as much as our goal or our thought or even our theology might have been oneness, we were definitely wearing separate jerseys. Uh, and over the course of a couple of decades of marriage now, I'd say we've got a team mentality going, but that was a, a lot of therapy along the way, you know, for sure. For sure, Absolutely. you learn to get that way. And it wasn't always that way. I know you and I have talked before, and it might be good to catch us up on that. So 
adolescence is a fairly new concept, right? When did it start in the, in the, so you say in the eighties, we got child-centered parenting, um, but was adolescence is what teenager came out of the forties or the fifties? Like there wasn't even a word for that stage of life prior to that. The word adolescence was coined in 1904. Okay. And when, when, so if you bring this up with professional counselors and, and those in academics, they will, they will take you apart. Right. So I, (laughs) I don't argue too much against adolescence, even though it's about a hundred years old. And, and so I was just at a a professional counseling conference two weeks ago. And, and I said it, I go, when I bring up adolescence and you can just see the division in the room, like, (laughs) Hey, we, we know this is a stage in life, but where you get every single one of them on the same page is when you mentioned prolonged adolescence. Gotcha. That's when they all go, yep, we see that. Carrie, we've so stretched out prolonged adolescence that uh, one UCLA professor says we need another term, and he wants to call it youthhood, and mm. it would be between adolescence and adulthood. Okay. So if you, if you think about this, traditionally and historically, really only two seasons of life, and biblically, you have childhood and adulthood. You went from being a boy to a man and from a girl to a woman. And in 1904, we created adolescence and we put this gap in between childhood and adulthood and prolonged adolescence, okay, on that gap and in that gap has stretched it out. So I always like to think about the five milestones of adulthood on that track called prolonged adolescence. And it it simply goes like this. Uh, Number one, uh, leave home. Number two, finish school or any training or an apprenticeship that you might need. Three, get a job. Four, start a family or get married. Five, start a family. So those Mm -hmm. are the five milestones of adulthood. They've been the same in every generation. So at a conference earlier this week, I, I met Fred and Joanne married 62 years. And I said, Fred, Joanne, the only difference between your generation and my generation is you completed those five milestones in a very short period of time, if not in the same week. Yeah, 23, and, 24, 25, right? Yeah, Darn. and they laughed because they know. What we've done with prolonged adolescence is we've taken those five milestones, the same five milestones, mm-hmm. leave home, finish school, get a job, get married, start a family, and we've placed those on the prolonged adolescent track, and we've stretched them out now, 10, yeah. 15, and honestly, in some cases, uh, 20, 25 years. Hmm. That it's, it's like the first big crisis, and because I deal with marriage more than anything, that first talk of divorce in the home in the late 20s or early 30s or mid 30s. It's like I'm being confronted with such massive amounts of responsibility and paying bills and work and everything involved in life. I'm not equipped to handle this. And what you're really dealing with today in a lot of 30-somethings in marriage counseling is uh, the prolonged adolescence. They still have not fully grasped how to handle this responsibility, even though it's been handed to them completely. Mom and dad are now out of the equation. And normally and historically, when are people ready for that? I mean, you hear people getting married as young as 18, and a lot of people wouldn't recommend that. But like, what, between 18 and 25, you start to take those steps? Or what does that look like? I I say early 20s. I say, and again, I, I I can't see myself fighting too much the traditional uh, college pressure that our young people feel today. But I will, I, same thing with you. I mean, I, I met Amy 
I was 21. She was 20. We decided to get married when I was 22 and she was 21. She had not yet finished her first uh, or she had not yet finished college. So she had one year left. She was finishing her junior year. I was graduating and I went to Fremont, Nebraska, walked into the kitchen of my six foot two, soon to be father-in-law, full-blooded Norwegian, pretty much a Viking. And, uh, I said, Mr. Freetag, can I marry your daughter? And he, in his thick Norwegian accent, he said, you betcha. And then I said, only under one condition. And he said, what's that? I said that you allow me to pay for her senior year of college. Wow. To which he said, you betcha. So, <laughs> That's so, great. But, and whenever I tell that story, the young guys in our church will say to me, "How man, how did you do that? And I'll look at him and I'll say this in a loving and joking way, but I'll go, well, at the time, I didn't have a venti caramel macchiato in my right hand and an iPhone 5 in my left. Yeah. I, I remember we're going we're gonna to sound like old people pretty soon. Yeah, you know, we are. My, my, kids, <laughs> my kids are 18 and 22. But I remember when Tony, my wife, and I decided to have our first child, um, we had been married and we knew there was a window. We were still students. We were in law school. She took a term off, worked in the marketplace. We saved as students, we saved $10,000 and put it aside in a separate bank account so that we would be ready for children. Now, I don't want to claim I was completely mature when I became a dad, but like I was 26 when I became a dad. And um, I'll tell you, you can do it if you want to. And I, I'm trying to instill that in my kids, right? Where's your part of the education? Um, and, and you know, you can, you can get your kids financially independent, but you've got to lose that sense of entitlement. So let's shift this a little bit. That's a really helpful introduction. But this impacts us in leadership all the time. I think we're going to listen to this uh, conversation with both our, our parenting hats and our leadership hats on. But how does this translate into the workplace, this whole idea of, of, of prolonged adolescence? And how does it translate into, uh, you know, even the world of volunteers when you're trying to create a leadership culture in your church, organization, or business? A lot of employers complain you know, they can't spell, they can't do this and they can't do that and they won't take on responsibility and they want their birthdays off and they want four weeks vacation in their first year. Now, I work with a lot of millennials and I don't think that's universal, but it certainly seems to be a problem. How does, how does this attitude translate into the workplace for a lot of people? Well, I think the first thing you have to recognize is you're going to be the first one to help many transition into adulthood. Okay. And and to me, that's a first step to understand. And early in ministry, I didn't get that because I grew up in a home with parents that, I mean, just handed me massive loads of responsibility at the age of six. I mean, my wow. dad was the type driving home. If he saw a neighbor with, you know, the grass a foot high, he'd stop the car and tell me, go up, knock on the door and offer to cut it for 10 bucks. I mean, my dad was just that type of guy hmm. that said, you don't need to be sitting around. You need to be working. And, and so... I, as a 35-year-old pastor, would look at the millennials and be like, come on, I get frustrated. And then I realized this is an opportunity. I'm not going to be that whining and complaining. As you said a minute ago, we're going to sound like old men here in a second, but I don't, yeah. don't want to be that guy. Right. I want to be the guy that walks alongside him and say, okay, listen, God's placed us together at this point in your journey, and I'm going to be the first one. College didn't do it. Your parents didn't do it. Uh, and I, as your first employer— First full-time employer, I'm going to be the one that introduces you to adulthood and what that means. And I think Great when you attitude. have that conversation with someone, 
they're open to it. And now you're not just an employer, but you're a mentor. Hmm. That's a really, really good point. And if you think about it that way, instead of rolling your eyes and complaining, because I've gotten together um, with leaders who are a decade or two, and it, it can easily turn into a complain fest. And I find that the millennials I work with at our church, and we've got lots, and we've got uh, a few on staff, quite a few on staff, uh, they're quite responsible, and they want to learn, and they want to grow. And some came from homes where they got responsibility early. Some didn't. I mean, some kind of raised themselves. And um, they're often eager. You've just got to show them the way. So, okay, that's a really good point. How else does it translate into the workplace or into a leadership environment, Ted? Yeah, I, I like to discover what they're reading and then and listening to. And instead of making them listen to my country music, I want to find out the hip hop artists they're listening to. But I'll give you an example of that. When uh, the book Radical came out, yep, David the, millennial, the millennials in our church devoured it. And I started to hear this tone among them. Now, this is really a positive thing. And I thought, boy, this is just something. This is gold that we need to camp on, I thought. Sure. I, I told Amy. Because the they really embraced this. But then what I started to hear was this disdain for stuff. Hmm. Like, instead of good theology where the love of money is evil, it, money was starting to become evil. And having stuff started to become evil. And the the, the, the tone I was hearing was kind of like, uh, well, it's just stuff. We don't want it. And we're going to give everything we have away to serve God. And right. I came in and listened to that. I, I wanted to listen. I think this is important. You got to listen. You got to listen. You got to listen. But it, it, at one point, I finally said, hey, listen, guys, I just want to tell you, before you give everything away, I just want to remind you, you ain't got nothing to give away. <laughs> I go, you, you haven't earned anything yet. You've, you've been out of college for five months and you're, you know, your student loans. I mean, you, you don't, you can't develop this. And I said, don't look at the boomers as this evil generation that worked and they have some stuff and, and act like, you know, they're not giving enough of it away. So I would take what they're reading and bring that in to say, what if, what if God's calling you, uh, to, to be an entrepreneur and to make money to bless ministry with. I said, you, you got to be more open to that. So I think that's another step as part of being a mentor, being a leader, being the first one to introduce prolonged adolescence to adulthood is to find out what they're listening to and then hear the messages. And because a lot of young people in our church also, my friend Gary Thomas wrote the book, Sacred Marriage. Mm -hmm. Did God give you your spouse to make Love you? Love that book holy or happy. And a lot of millennials didn't even read that, but use that as a book to, to delay marriage and to say, you know, I'm just going to wait. I'll go on a mission trip. I don't need marriage to make me holy at this point. And so I, I just think a lot of times messages, you know, can get lost between generations. There's a gap. And so to be real astute to what they're listening to and don't be the grumbler, be the one that sits down at lunch or even at the beginning of a staff meeting. You know, I could give you guys a devotion today, but what are you guys reading? Mm -hmm. What are you reading? Let's talk about it. What are you learning? And then and then just bring a, a voice of responsibility to that. Well, and part of that, I remember uh, an all-day staff retreat we had a couple of years ago, and we had a lot of millennial leaders around the table, and we were talking about our direction at our church, Conexus Church. And one of the ideas that came up around the table was, well, let's just sort of unleash social justice on our community. And it was very idealistic. It didn't really have any anything tethering the balloon to the planet 
kind of thing. And um, I, I remember a few of us who had been in leadership for a little while said, hey, that's a great ideal and we want to be a just church. But like, how do you ship that? Like, what do you do? You can't just walk around with a t-shirt or a banner that says, I'm all in favor of this, you know, peace, love, and happiness. What do you do with that? And so what we had to do was we had to put some strategy behind um, a, a goal and then all of a sudden it had legs. And so we did a few things in our community. And, and now as a North Point strategic partner, I mean, we do the Be Rich initiative every year, as well as a few other things that we do. And we partner with churches there, with, uh, with organizations in Guatemala, and we have other partners in Africa that we work with. And they're making a difference, as well as in our local community, a couple of community organizations. But I think you're right. Uh, often, it's not the ideals that need to be shot down. They just need to be channeled so they actually become something that makes a difference. Absolutely. And I think one way a boss or a team leader can coach someone uh, out of prolonged adolescence is to take those messages, you know, because I do that, that, that is something that we should stand up and applaud that the millennials do have a heart to serve the world. They have oh, a heart huge. to give, but I'm always, I, we have this very simple equation around here. It's, it's earn, give, save, and spend. Mm. And so don't look down on earning. Earning is not bad. We, we want to be earners. We need to be producers. And so that's, to me, one of the ways to coach out of that. And again, too much privilege, not enough responsibility. You know, the phones and the technology we have and the 3 and $4 drinks, that's all part of privilege. Nothing wrong with any of that. Right. But if that's the pursuit, you're a consumer. So how do you transition a young person from being a consumer, even in the work environment, to being a producer? Right. And the fact that, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. There's a little delay. But, you know, even the fact, Ted, that that it's an alternative consumption. In other words, I buy all yeah. recycled clothes. I only buy um, fair trade. I only eat organic. I only do this. It's still consumption. It's just disguised as something other than mainstream consumption. Absolutely. Yeah. But to, to, to really challenge, to be producers, to, to be a part of something bigger, to produce. And I, I always, I always just love the, the, when Ecclesiastes says the sleep of a laborer is sweet, hmm. that really we rest well when we worked hard. So what I hear under what you're saying is kind of the desire for a work ethic. So let's say somebody has a volunteer and they're like, really, you want us to serve every week and you want us to get up at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning or you have an employee and uh, maybe not at the job interview because perhaps they wouldn't have gotten the job, but you realize, okay, they want four weeks off or they want their birthday off or, you know, they expect to be done at three o'clock every day. And, and listen, I'm coming at this not as a slave driver. We all want work-life balance, but there's that, that sense of maybe entitlement um, that comes and, and not just from workers in their twenties or thirties, but I mean, Hey, we, we get that in our forties and beyond too. So how do you coach someone into a different mindset? What would you say to somebody who's dealing with a situation right now? And while you've been talking specific names have come to mind, uh, how would you coach that person to, um, address that attitude? Yeah, I think the other side of this addressing prolonged adolescence as a leader mm -hmm. is knowing the difference between character and competency. Okay. I, I think it's something parents and leaders really struggle with. And if you give me just a second to develop this, because I sure. think this is important for, for leaders to understand. And I think we get it the best as parents. But, uh, you know, I, I used to bring home failing grades in math 
right. uh, all the time in high school. I was not great at math. And uh, my dad's an engineer. So you can imagine bringing home failing grades in math to your engineer father. And I didn't catch on to this till 25 years later. And just a couple of years ago, I asked my dad, I go, dad, why did you never get frustrated with me when I would bring home bad grades in math? And he said, it's because you studied more for math than all of your other subjects combined. Hmm. And I said, what, what does that mean? Again, my, and I think a lot of our parents understood the difference between character and competency. He said, I wasn't dealing with laziness, which is a character issue. Right. I was dealing with competency. You didn't have, God didn't give you a math brain. So I just did not, I didn't stress over that. He said, now, if you never studied for it and brought home failing grades, we would have had some very serious talks. Today, parents and 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 so this transitions into that young person that just started at, at you know, your company or in your church or as a volunteer, they they haven't been able to know the difference because mom and dad in the entitlement generation and in prolonged adolescence and in the trophy parenting uh, world now, they want their kids to be awesome at everything. Yeah. So when their children show a deficiency in competency in an area, we get tutors, we spend more time in it. We're going to get you awesome in this sport, in this instrument, in this subject. We're going to get you awesome at everything. And I think what I do when I meet that person who is has a hard time getting to work and they because it's all been muddled together, they have to understand how hard you work is a part of your character. Right. The type of work you do is part of competency. And that's negotiable. That's changing all the time. You can learn new skills and abilities and do other stuff, but your character is what we're more concerned with. We're, we're more concerned with developing that character in you. So when you show up, how hard you work while you're here, giving us your best time, leaving when you're supposed to and, and not taking longer breaks or longer lunches, and that's all part of your character. That's the most important thing for us. Uh, in in our work environment, and then the type of stuff you do, and I think you're like, well, is how do you? Why is linking those two so important? It's because that volunteer who doesn't want to show up after giving you their word that they will mm. doesn't hasn't had those two lines drawn from them. They're like, well, he'll get over it. I told him I would, but I can't. Well, but but we're dealing now with a character issue that really needs to be addressed. That's a really, really good insight. And I, I think that's great advice. And I mean, I think studies have even shown, I can't quote them chapter and verse, but I've read studies that have said parents that kind of um, affirm outcomes, like great, you got a great grade. There have been times where, you know, our kids came home with A's and, and we said, well, that's great, but did you really work for it? You know, can, can you turn the 83 to an 86? Like, I'd rather have you work for something rather than just, just focus on the outcome. And then there were other areas where I know that's once good. or twice they struggled for a 72 in something. And we were like, that that's even worth more than your mark that was an 85 or 90 because you worked so hard for it. Like, way to go. So in the workplace, what does that look like? I'm trying to, or, or in your organization, the volunteer basically says, yeah, I'm not coming in. Sorry, I slept in. I was tired. I was up the night before. Or the employee says, well, I just I just got to go. Are there certain things you can do to kind of um, truncate prolonged adolescence? Yeah, I, I think especially if you have someone that's super high on competency, mm-hmm. they'll start to rely on their competency more than their character. Yeah. And, and they'll let their character slide 
because I'm so valuable for you and what I do. Right. I, I encourage our I encourage our salesmen all the time in this area. You're a sale this salesman in our church. I'm like, man, you're you're good at what you do. You can you can sell stuff. Yeah. People like you at the end of the conversation and they buy what you're selling. But boy, please don't ever let that run ahead of your character. Mm-hmm. Always be concerned above reproach. When asked a question and you you're choosing between being principled and expedient, ah, go with principled. Lean on the principle, not on whatever gets the sale, you know, in the books for you that month. And I, I think that's what happens too with with young people. It's like, hey, I can work from wherever I want. I can do whatever I want uh, because my boss can't program a computer like I can. Right. So I can, I'll get to it when I get to it. I'll get, no, again, that's relying on your competency. And remote work really does. I mean, that's that's a growing thing. We have employees who work remotely. I work remotely a couple of days a week, but that's really where your character takes over because nobody really knows what you do, right? Nobody yeah. really knows. Yeah. Did you actually did you actually show up? Did you phone it in? Uh, did you goof off? What, what did you do? And so what is it? Is it just having those character conversations and having them often? that really sort of force someone to take responsibility? You've just got to get more used to having those conversations? Yeah, because because if you think about it, your competency will let you down mm. in the future. I promise you. You'll you oh, you yeah. won't hit the you won't hit the deadline. You won't please everybody. You won't exceed expectations. You won't meet expectations. But it's your character that you want growing. And as we talk about this too much privilege and not enough responsibility, Okay, the when my character is growing, when my character is character is what responsibility flows from. Okay, so commitment flows from your character. I can throw another C in here, but, you know, our our culture is obsessed, obsessed in relationships with chemistry and compatibility. Mm -hmm. And so we think it's the most important thing. But I tell couples this as well. You know, compatibility is something you make. It's not something you stumble into. It's not yeah. something you fall into. You negotiate it each day. And so how do you have the stick to to negotiate that and to work through difficult conversations and to deal with conflict? It comes from your character. Right. You make decisions. That's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things you talk about in your book, Trophy Child, you talk about the rescue parent and rescue parenting. These are the parents who really... Um, just to, you'll say it better than I can, but basically rescue the kids from the consequences of their responsibility, of their irresponsibility. So I think one of the examples you gave is a 16-year-old crashed the car and dad went out the next day and bought him a brand new car. Well, Mm. life doesn't work that way, right? Like dad just absorbed all the consequences of your irresponsibility. And uh, do you ever see that at work in leadership where sometimes, you know, you're pretty grateful to have someone on your team and they don't show up or they don't meet the project deadline or they, they, they're, they're just not burning. And again, I'm not into a hundred hour work week or an 80 hour work week, but they just don't seem to be putting in the effort. They seem to be cruising. Do you think sometimes as bosses, we rescue people? Do you think sometimes as adults, we, we carry that into the workplace or into a leadership environment where it's like we start making excuses for people while they were tired or, well, that's just the way it is, or, you know, you can't get much better than that. Do you, do you see that at work sometimes in leadership? A hundred percent. I think one of the best things a boss or a team leader can say is one of the best things that a parent can say when asked by their teenager, mom and dad, what do you think if I, the best question, I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. 
and to turn it back around on them so you can be part of their processing. My mom and dad did that. I, I told him, I told my mom and dad while I was writing Trophy Child, I spent a lot of time calling my mom and dad saying, hey, thank you. I didn't even realize you were doing that. But, <laughs> you know, and, and my mom, and I think that's a big, just a side note here. Yeah. One of the most honoring things you can do for your parents is to call them as an adult and say, you know, you did something 20 years ago. I just wanted to say thank you. It was so subtle. It was so small. But I understand that. Wow. And and my, my dad and mom all the time, I would go, hey, I'm thinking about buying this. What do you guys think? I don't know. What do you think? How much you have in the bank? Mm-hmm. How much is it going to cost? Are you going to get a return on it? Or get, I mean, they would just walk through all of that. And I think if that that insecure new employee sits down wanting to make sure, because here's the other problem, and this is definitely the trophy child syndrome, because they receive so many gold stars mm-hmm. and so many you know, uh, excellence on everything, if if they do something poorly or make a mistake in the office and they're called on it, I mean, it's like their world comes crashing down on them. Absolutely. Because they were told how awesome they are. And if you're the first one that tells them, you didn't do that right, let me show you how to do that right. Then they may become gun shy and then they come in the office and they're like, uh, Carrie, what do you think if I were to, I don't know, what do you think? Tell me what you're thinking. Process that with me so they can know, they can begin to, hey, before I make this decision, I've thought about two or three outcomes of this decision. Right. And you know, the other thing I think that does, you're helping me see this too, is when you throw the question back on them and, and you do it in a very nice way, like, I don't know, what do you think? You know, I got this problem I can't solve. Uh, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? I think what you do at that point is you transfer responsibility. Right? right. All of a sudden, you don't absorb that responsibility. So the helicopter parent or the helicopter leader or the rescue leader or the rescue parent would be like, well, I think you should do this and you should set it up this way. And here, I'll go do that or I'll go to the bank for you or I'll take care of that. Because then you're just making them more irresponsible. And you're so right. When you ask the question, what do you think? It transfers responsibility, and, and not only do they, do they think it through, they own the outcome, because all of a sudden they have skin in the game, and then when it doesn't work, they thought about it, they, didn't, they can't go, oh, well, that was Ted's idea, and it was a dumb one anyway, <laughs> right? You know what we call that at our church? We what? call that, take the, take the hit. Hmm. Take the hit. You come into the senior pastor, who, or, or the CEO, or whoever, and he may be, he's the quarterback. And if you're snapping the ball to him, and this is the word picture I love, and I got this from a senior staffer at our church probably six or seven years ago. He told one young staffer, he said, you know what you did Sunday when that lady came to you and said she doesn't like the volume? Instead of taking the hit, you snapped the ball to Ted, and then you, get, you got out of the way and you didn't even take the block. Right? <laughs> you, didn't, you did not take the hit. You, you said, this is the volume Ted wants it at. And, 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 but, but see, those are those moments of gold to yes. say, you got to take the hit. You just, you, your value here is in responsibility. You're a leader. Mm. So take that and to say, hey, explain to that lady, help her, encourage her. Uh, oh, I think that is so good. Was it, did you do that? You did a blog post on just turning down the volume on people who should be. I did. Up. Yeah. Why, what yeah, was that, it called? The we'll link same to it. Thing. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's called well, Why Just Turning Down His Microphone is a Bad Leadership Strategy. We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, yeah, and it was one of those things where people don't want to have the conversation and no one wants to take the responsibility and there's a really bad singer on stage. So you whisper to the sound guy and everybody but the guy knows and it's like, just turn down his mic. Just turn down his mic. 
right? Because we can't tell him he's terrible. Well, somebody's got to get up there and go, you can't sing. Maybe you can serve somewhere else, but you can't sing. I I agree. Okay, this has been a lot of fun and we're running low on time. I got two more questions for you. Okay, one of them is somebody sitting there right now and they could be, you know, 18, 25, 35, 45, I don't know. And they're going, that's me. I've been named. I realize I've got a problem today. Um, and it's probably overwhelming them. Where would they start? What What's one or two things they could do to just even begin reversing the tide to say, I got to grow up. I got to take some responsibility. But how do they do that? What, what, what? Yeah. And, and if we're talking that 18 to 25 year range, uh, examine your ties. Who are you okay. still tied to? And then have the hard conversations. I speak every year at a gap year program. So okay. it's kids who are leaving high school, going to college. Yep. And and it's it's before their freshman year. It's a whole year program. And, and we have this conversation, you and I have been having the last 40 minutes. And I, I do this for three days. At the end of three days of talking about prolonged adolescence, entitlement, growing up and all that. I can't begin to tell you, Carrie, the number of students that raise their hand and say, we want to do this. These are 18 and 19 year olds. We want to do this, but our parents won't let us. Ted, Ted, I want a job. They won't let me get one. Ted, I want to buy my own car. They keep paying me. They just want it to be about college and about learning and about, you know, and so a lot of times the privilege of the parent, because they have the resources to give their child. It's not about what you can or cannot give your child. It's about the responsibility of your child. Mm -hmm. So at 18 and 19, at 20, there may be some conversation. It could be as simple as calling home to say, hey, I appreciate that I'm on the friends and family plan, but I'm I'm at a point and I have a part-time job while in college. I'm going to pay for my own phone bill. Yep. Start taking little bits of responsibility showing your parents. Because I hear this in in pre-marriage counseling all the time. Uh, I just wish my parents would trust me. Okay, when's the last time you called home for money? Well, you know, they pay Yesterday. half my rent. Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> What's your point? <laughs> and, and I would say this. If you're 18 to 25 years old and your ties are still to home, I think – and I'm not saying, you know, if mom and dad are covering your insurance, I'm not saying like right. tomorrow just end it all, but you do need a plan. Mm. And to have that conversation with your mom and dad of a plan – and to say, hey, listen, I'm applying for my first job. HR directors are telling me this. Mom and dad calling in to negotiate first compensation packages. Oh, really? Yeah. No, yep. no, 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 no. You tell mom and dad, I got this one. Now, you can go over to their house, you know, that night and say, hey, Get here's some what advice. they're discussing. Get some advice. That's great. Mom and dad calling the HR director is a no, no. And you take the responsibility with that right. and say, mom, don't need you calling on my behalf. Right, exactly. I mean, I've seen situations where parents in an employment situation where it gets conflicted, the parents will come in and demand a meeting. And it's like, we didn't hire you. We hired your daughter. We hired your son. All right. Okay. That's really good. So cut the ties and take responsibility. But that also means um, absorbing that responsibility. That might mean you don't get the $5 macchiato. That might mean that that money actually goes to your phone bill, which is part of adulthood, part of responsibility. Now, if you're the rescue parent or the rescue employer or the rescue leader who just goes in and keeps making excuses for your team, keeps like, well, that's fine. What's one change you could do? I love the what if thing is, you know, well, what would you do? What would you do? Um, is there anything else you can, you can, as we wrap up, 
give advice um, to the people who might say, okay, I, I'm the rescue parent, I'm the rescue leader? What, what would you say? Yeah. To and I, you know, so much of what we talked about today is about today and is about your performance at work or mm-hmm. at church today. But I think one of the most honoring things you can do for a young person to prepare them for responsibility is to begin picturing a special future for them. Hmm. And, and spend some time with them painting a picture of 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, how, again, chemistry might change because you may be in a different job. Competency might change. You might learn new skills and go do something else. Right. But it's your character that will sustain you from here to there. And responsibility is part of your character. So I want to help you build that. So because, you know, 10 years from now, you're married, you have small children, uh, your, your responsibility isn't going to probably start decreasing until you hit those retirement years. Mm-hmm. You are on a path of, you know, uh, all eight cylinders going with responsibility between here and 60 or here and 65. You know, so begin to picture that special future. And this, I think the sad part for me, Carrie, is I look at a lot of millennials today. There, There is a lot of hopelessness. Getting out of college, I can't yeah. get a job. My student debt is huge. They need some voices alongside them that are saying, you can do this. You can do this. It's going to take some time. You're not going to be able to do in three years what your mom and dad did in 30. That's not going to happen. But let me tell you how you can begin on that path. Paint a big picture, just not a what I need from you today Mm -hmm. at work. You know, that's really good advice. And I would say with the millennials that I work with up, up close every day, they are so open to mentorship. Like I'm surprised when I was 25, I was not that open to mentors. I I kind of figured it all out and I knew it all. And, you know, now I've lived long enough to know I know almost nothing, but uh, (laughs) they, they are so open to that kind of coaching. Well, Ted, this has been incredibly helpful, incredibly enlightening. I imagine people are going to want to know more about you and they're also going to want to know more about this. So what's the easiest way for them to find you online or to get in touch with you? Uh, Woodhills.org, woodhills.org, or they can go to tedcunningham.com and it takes you to our church website, Woodhills. Excellent. Hey, Ted, can't thank you enough. Thank you, Gary. Well, you got to admit, that is fascinating. I'm, I'm so grateful that Ted would take the time to build into you and your team and your head's probably spinning right now going, okay, that's a really different way of looking at things. And I think there are some super helpful tips. So what we've done is we have broken down a lot of those tips and some quotes and so on and things that you can do in the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven. And also you might want to check out some of Ted's books. A couple that come to mind are Young and in Love and Trophy Child. He did deals with a lot of the issues that we talked about in those books. And you can learn more about Ted at his church's website. Just go to woodhills, that's woodhills.org. And again, everything's in the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven. Now, if you found this podcast helpful, please, if you would, take a moment and just leave a rating in the iTunes store or on TuneIn Radio or on Stitcher. We'd love to hear from you. And your review gives us honest feedback and also gives us an opportunity to get that message in front of other people because it just really impacts the ranking of the podcast and and just thank you it's also fuel for me you guys you're awesome okay that's so cool and now the contest are you ready okay this is going to be fun over the next few weeks next few episodes here's what we're going to do we're going to give you a chance to win a prize every week and then when you enter by leaving a comment in the show notes of the blog it's also your ballot 
to win the grand prize. So this week's prize is an autographed copy of Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. The grand prize, which we're going to draw for uh, a little bit later on, a few episodes down the road, is a free ticket to the Orange Conference 2015 in Atlanta in April of next year. It is a premier conference on leadership for those who want to influence the next generation. Andy Stanley's going to be there, Perry Noble, Reggie Joyner, John Acuff, Donald Miller, Virginia Ward, a whole lot more. I'm going to be there. I'm going to lead the senior leaders track and we're going to make this interesting. Okay. It is the only ticket, the only ticket at Orange Conference 2015 that gets you a bonus. Not only is it free, but it's going to get you a coffee with me and John Acuff backstage. So if you, I know a lot of you love John Acuff. He's an amazing leader, a great friend. We're just going to hang out with you backstage and we will take your questions and we're just going to sit down, just the three of us, and have a conversation. So if you're interested in that, here's what you do. Go to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven, and leave a comment and answer this question. What is the one best thing you've done as a parent or church leader to encourage young adults to take on more responsibility? Okay. When you leave a comment, that's your ballot. I'll draw this week for somebody who wins the book, and then we're going to keep all those ballots, all those comments, and a few weeks from now, we're going to do the grand prize draw. So that's your entry. Okay, you can enter every week by leaving a comment, but why don't you start right now? Just go on to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode seven, and um, you could win a copy of Parenting Beyond Your Capacity signed by Reggie and myself, or um, you can also win, or I should say, and you can also win the grand prize, which is the Orange Tour 2015 free admission to the conference and coffee with John Acuff and I backstage. So head on over to the show notes now, leave a comment. And the cool thing about this contest is every week we're going to learn best practices. Isn't that cool? It'll actually make you a better leader and me a better leader. So that's that's fun. So thanks for doing that. Hey, next episode, a week from now, we're coming back. You're going to hear from Rich Birch. Rich is an awesome leader. He writes a blog called unseminary.com. Rich is honestly one of the most uh, progressive thinkers I know, and he's going to talk all about how church and culture are changing. He's just outside New York City helping with a great church there and what we can do as leaders to respond to the changes we're seeing. So until next time, have a great week, and I hope this helps you lead like never before. And go over to the show notes now and leave your ballot. Okay, you ready? Leave a comment. That's your ballot. And uh, don't forget, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.